นโมตัสสะภะวะทุวะระหะตัวสัมมาสัมบุทัสสะนโมตัสสะภะวะทุวะระหะตัวสัมมาสัมบุทัสสะนโมตัสสะภะวะทุวะระหะตัวสัมมาสัมบุทัสสะพุทธังธรรมังสังฆังนามัสสะ
gorgeous countryside uh, if we didn't have all this rain. And admittedly, I've got a very nice, warm, dry cottage to live in, which if I didn't, I probably would feel different about it. But yeah, I, when I was younger, I loved the sun, a sun worshiper from the South Pacific. And, and uh, the last time I remember going overseas, a couple of years ago, I went to the south of France, and I couldn't wait to get back. I mean, Perpignan, who needs it? I mean, I just, I just couldn't wait to get back to Northumberland. So preferences, I mean, just to name a few, I'm sure we've all got our own experiences of how, how fickle they can be, and yet how we're driven by them. And so what are we supposed to be doing in terms of practice? Uh, if they cause us so much suffering as they can do, Mm. we're not supposed to be getting rid of them at least that's what the teachers tell us I remember when I lived with Ajahn Tate um, my first year as a monk in Thailand and um, around 1975 I think it was and he uh, was commenting on the the chanting that we do in Thailand as some of you may have heard that they chant one line in Pali then one line in Thai and and where it's talking about the qualities of the Buddha as being an arahant, and the, in the Thai language they translate as that as as Kile, which means one who is far from defilements. And Ajahn Tate would just he would say, no, no, this is not a good translation. He says, the arahant is not the fully enlightened being is not far from defilements at all. Tanyang Kailagun, very close to defilements, but. He knows the reality. And by defilements here, he's talking about this <coughs> liking and disliking. There's these movements of heart, these movements of mind that incline us in the direction of liking or incline us in the direction of disliking and the tendency to get caught up. But for an arahant, an arahant doesn't get caught up. That's the difference. A fully liberated being doesn't get caught up in liking and disliking. Hmm. They have them. Yeah. I sometimes wonder, you know, what an arahant would like for breakfast. And, and well, you know, I like han and power porridge. I'm a great fan of han and power porridge, as you may have gathered if you lived in the state of the monastery for a while. But I remember being in Burma once, and at about I don't know four thirty or five o'clock in the morning, being served up this salty rice soup with fermented fish floating around in it. And I thought, well, you know, I wonder, in an arahant in Burma, if he was given Han and power porridge, how would he feel about it? Well, my understanding is that he probably or she probably wouldn't like Han and power porridge. He probably would prefer fermented fish floating around in salty rice gruel. The conditioned preferences are just so. The senses are just so. But what's different is the knowing, is the relationship to the liking and the disliking. Mm. Again, very early on in my life as a monk, and I was living with Ajahn Chah at the time, and I wasn't actually present, and I didn't hear the words myself, and it's a long time ago, but what I remember hearing of this conversation that took place with uh, Ajahn Chah was between a... A uh, gentleman who came up from Bangkok, a very uh, educated, very powerful, influential man who was uh, seriously distressed. He had 
good reason to be seriously distressed and he was just looking for something to help him find some peace of mind and and some contentment and uh, a very troubled person and somebody had recommended, oh, you should go and see this great wise old monk up in the northeast of Thailand, Ajahn Chah, and ask him to give you some teachings. So this man did come up. And as I remember hearing this conversation reported, it was, um, this fellow asked Ajahn Chah, said, the Buddha taught about the middle way. The middle way is the way of freedom. What is the middle way? And very helpfully, Ajahn Chah's reply was, liking is one extreme. Disliking is the other extreme. Knowing liking and disliking is the middle way. Uh, I remember hearing that and finding that, and always found that very, very helpful. And if we establish our mindfulness training, our practice on just that much, it's going to take us in a very helpful direction. Our difficulty is not having liking and disliking. Our difficulty is getting caught up in liking and disliking. The Buddha had conditions that he found agreeable and disagreeable. But what he didn't have was suffering. Where does the suffering come from? The suffering comes from attachment to this body-mind, attachment to the conditions. Now, if we focus our practice on trying to get rid of well, usually people try to get rid of the disliking, but you can't get rid of one without the other. Yeah. Trying to get rid of liking and disliking, they're really going to struggle. Mm. So <clears throat> a wiser approach to this would be to get interested in the reality of liking and disliking. In other words, to get interested in studying, studying this, this movement that we call our preferences our biases, our habits of liking, disliking, or studying desire, which, of course, as Buddhists, is what we're supposed to be doing. Yeah. As also, um, recently, I, in conversation with uh, Lumpur Tiradamo, and I was asking him how his latest book is coming along. He, if some of you may have read his recent book, on Working with the Hindrances, which I'm aware... A good number of people have found very helpful and the book he's working on at the moment is called Eye Making and he's, it's one of his favourite themes for giving talks on and, and I expect it will be a valuable resource when it comes out because this I, this me, this me in my way when it arises it's just it's just so difficult. It just feels so me. You know, this preference is my liking. You know, when I like a piece of music, you know, I was talking with somebody recently about the Hallelujah Chorus and Handel's Messiah. And it's just when you hear it, you just, you, I don't know, can you hear the Handel's Messiah without crying? I mean, it's just such an extraordinary, beautiful piece of music. Can we hear that which is beautiful without getting lost in the beauty? Can we hear or can we see, can we sense that which is not beautiful without getting lost in our disliking? That's the question. And so the studying, uh, this comes from our interest, hopefully, not in getting rid of liking and disliking, but our interest in the reality of liking and disliking. 
And if we want to study something, what do we do? Well, we've got to slow things down a bit. Got to steady the mind, steady the heart. Gentle the activity. We're not talking about getting rid of, again, liking, disliking. Like you want to study, if you're a scientist and you want to study something under a microscope, you've got some bacteria or something and you're, you're looking under a microscope. If the slide is always moving, of course you can't see it. You've got to you know, keep the thing still. And you don't want to get rid of that which you're studying. Or similarly with desires, with preferences, with biases. It's important we don't approach this with the attitude of trying to get rid of it, but to get interested in the reality. So yes, we do need to slow down. We do need to steady the mind. In other words, we, don't, we, want, to, we want to inhibit to some degree the tendency to follow our likings and dislikings. You know, often people come across renunciate monks and nuns and think that they've got an opinion about the world, all sensual tendencies are demonized. Well, that's a very uninformed understanding of what renunciation is about. You know, renunciation is about, well, one thing is about simplifying, and the other thing renunciation is about is intensifying. When we stop following our preferences, what do we do? We get in touch with a lot of the energy that's already there in our hearts. The heart energy often manifests itself in wild, unruly passion, following our liking and disliking. So what we're doing is simplifying, restraining, containing, out of an interest to understand the reality of these things. So that our relationship with liking and disliking is an informed relationship, not a reactive relationship. So if we're going to do that, then there's going to be some energy building up, there's going to be some intensity, there's going to be some challenges, we're going to feel like we're under some pressure and and this is why we're fortunately equipped with the spiritual disciplines by those who have tried and tested them over the millennia in the past. You know, we're not on our own with this. We've got people who've been there before us and, and they can give us some clear guidelines, some helpful hints into what works and what doesn't work. You know, like the formal exercises in formal practice. You know, like you know, the cultivation of samadhi, like the, the steadying of attention like the discipline that's required to steady attention, like the attitude that's required to steady attention. And the consequences of not having steadied attention. Our teachers point out these things to us, and we're fortunate to have that. Also, what they can point out and what they have pointed out, and how essential it is that we remember that what we're cultivating... What in the forest tradition in Thailand, they have this expression as, as the one who knows. As you've read some of the, the books of these forest teachers in Thailand, there were, a lot of them are talking about the one who knows, or do a puru. Yeah. Personally, uh, my, my sense of what's being referred to with this expression, do a puru, I would translate it rather as knowingness or awareness. Translating it as the one who knows and tends to risk solidifying it and making awareness into a somebody or a something. And of course our commitment to me and my way takes us in that direction all the time anyway. 
would very much like to become the one who got enlightened and, and to be in control and be in charge. But so long as we're still locked into that momentum, well, we're going to keep feeling stuck and limited. Rather, the encouragement is to simply be the knowing and to emphasize that, to incline towards, to hold that concept, to hold that model, to be the knowing, just know, be the awareness itself in which all these objects of awareness are taking place. Liking and disliking is a movement. When liking arises, it's a movement, isn't it? If you're sitting there in meditation and the mind is calm and still and peaceful and and then there's a, a sense of maybe joy arises and then there's this movement of liking, that's agreeable. Do we have to follow that movement? Or can we abide as the knowing of that movement? Disliking arises. Somebody is shuffling around and banging their seat or breathing loudly or yawning. People yawning during meditation. Why can't people yawn quietly? It's so disagreeable when people yawn during meditation. Not to mention those who don't wash before they come to meditation. They've got dirty, smelly socks and wearing aftershave lotion that smells like bathroom cleaner or something. These irritating things that happen in the meditation hall. You know, sitting and you get a little peace and then this disagreeable impression arises and then there's a movement of disliking. What do I have to wear that cologne for? Do we have to get caught up in that movement? Or is there a choice? That's really important. Is there an option to just abide as the awareness in which all these conditions are arising and ceasing? To be that which knows, to be the knowingness. And this pertains to a question that's been given this evening, which perhaps I could mention at this point. As my practice has developed, I have noticed myself becoming, at times, overly sensitive and overwhelmed to the disturbances related to other people. For example, picking up on vibrations, levels of sounds, tone of voice, as well as learning of other people's difficulties and suggesting whether to connect to me personally or not. How can I work with this? Well, as you might guess, my response would be emphasize the possibility of being awareness, being aware, rather than being the sensitivity. Now, we're not careful with our application of attention in meditation. We can emphasize the sensitivity. You potentize consciousness. You can become more sensitive. You will become more sensitive to sights and sounds and smells and tastes and the gorgeous incense that we burn in this monastery, we just become more gorgeous. The beautiful environment, the green, the garden, we become more beautiful. Now, if we're not careful, and we're still following our liking and disliking, we can become hypersensitive. I mean, you can become allergic to the incense. And becoming hypersensitive is quite a significant risk in Meditation practice. However, we can protect ourselves. We can do a little risk management. If we write it down and pin it on our fridge door or something, some way of reminding ourselves, be the awareness. Abide as the knowing, not the known. Not as the liking and the disliking. Not as the sensation. Mm -hmm. Exercise, when we apply ourselves to the spiritual disciplines, 
of containing the activity. You know, we're sitting meditation and the impulse to move, we inhibit that impulse. Physically, I'm talking about that. Well, likewise on the mind, when the impulse to follow some activity, some attractive philosophical fantasy that just occurred to us and in our increased awareness and the tendency to follow this brilliant, stunning thought formation that's just arisen in our mind that probably no human being has ever had ever before, we inhibit it. Why? Not because we're neurotically repressed. Well, we might be, but that's hopefully not the reason in this case. We inhibit it because we don't want to be compulsively following. Because if we follow that which is likable, we're going to follow that which is dislikable. If we get caught up in liking, we're going to get caught up in disliking. Liking and disliking are the objects of our study. They're the movements that we observe. They're the ripples that pass across the lake. How to abide as that in which these ripples are taking place is the question. So as we give ourselves these spiritual disciplines, these exercises, yes, there will be a build-up of pressure, and yes, it will become difficult. When I'm not getting my way, what does it feel like? It stinks. <laughs> That's all there is to it. I love getting my way all the time, basically, on an ego level. That's it. Now, maybe in uh, an expanded state of awareness, you might have experienced what a limited perception that is, uh, to always be getting off and getting my own way and, and maybe you can take delight in not having to get your own way. That's a more, that would be a more subtle level of pleasure. But on the egoic level, I love to get my way. I love to be in control. And that's true for all deluded egos. So if we're inhibiting our investing energy and attention in our deluded egoic activity... Uh, exercising the spiritual disciplines is going to be a build of energy and it's not necessarily going to feel good Uh, this is also as important to understand if we want to investigate our relationship to our preferences that it's not necessarily going to feel good sometimes often these days uh, spirituality is presented as a a way of just making yourself feel good and it's true can help you feel relaxed and self-accepting and at ease with things. I'm reminded of that uh, side. You may have heard me mention before how when I was uh, at high school, I don't know, maybe the age of 17 or something, and I was entered into the local speech contest that the Rotary Club organised. And the title of my speech was Is the function of religion to be comforting or challenging? And I gave my talk on the idea that the function of religion should be both. That it should be initially comforting and increasing our resources to well-being and then it should be challenging to uh, help us dig into our delusions and biases. But they, they failed me on my talk on the grounds that I didn't address the subject. The subject was, which one is it, comforting or biasing? And I... I think that was because the deputy headmaster was not a religious man and didn't really get my argument. But then I wasn't so religious either. But um, but I I did see the point of religion at that stage, and I still do, obviously, particularly with regards to feeling comfortable and challenged. Absolutely, both of them. 
But if all our spiritual commitments are doing is helping us feel relaxed and comfortable, then that's not, you know, that's, that's like preparing the meal but not eating it. You know, the han and power porridge, I mean, if you imagine just spending all that time, what time does he get up in the morning? 4.30 or something? 4.30 in the morning to prepare our power porridge and I don't know how long he's doing it for and just so that it's all well cooked and well prepared for everybody in the monastery and, and then not eating it? Come on, we wouldn't do that, would we? I mean, it has to be prepared. It is important we have access to well-being. But the well-being is there. That's the ground. That's what gives us the, the capacity to tolerate the intensity of the frustration which comes in this path of investigation. There will be frustration. It will be difficult. And, of course, this is not just my opinion. This is also what the Buddha said. Yeah. Dhammapada, verse 163, where it says, It is easy to do that which is of no real benefit to oneself, but it is difficult indeed to do that which is truly beneficial and good. Quote the Buddha. Yeah. It is difficult indeed to do that which is truly beneficial and good because we're going against the momentum of me and my way. And it's easy to do that which is of no real benefit. The occasion in which the Buddha gave this, this verse was um, a very uh, difficult period during the life of the Buddha when he had a recalcitrant monk. I mean, recalcitrant is an understatement. It was uh, Devadatta who tried to cause a schism in the Sangha and, and caused the Buddha lots of hassle. In fact, went around trying to even get the Buddha killed. And so the Buddha was pointing out that uh, it's easy to do these things that just follow our preferences. Uh, and, but it's difficult to do that which is truly beneficial and truly good. Yeah. So even though it's difficult, we should still do it. Yeah. A couple of weeks ago I referred to um, the, how our practice here could be defined as a course in strategic frustration. And thinking about it, I think a better translation could be applied frustration. What are we doing here? What do we come here for? We're training in a course in applied frustration. It's supposed to feel frustration. Now, if we don't have this view, if we have a worldly conditioned view, then it's going to be defined by, is it agreeable? If it's agreeable, we think it's good. Now, how often have we said that? Oh, I had a really good meditation. And what do we mean by that? So we, we had a nice time. Yeah. Now, if we're struggling in our meditation, but we're making effort, maybe that's a better meditation. But we don't say that. No. The worldly mind, the deluded egoic mind, says a good meditation is when I'm feeling good. Yeah. When we're really struggling, we're really, really leaning into the grindstone, as Ajahn Chah would say, to sharpen the sword of wisdom. You've got to lean into the grindstone. There's friction, there's tension, there's frustration. We somehow say that that's not good. Yeah. That's an unfortunate view. Mm. There needs to be pressure, there needs to be heat. We have in the monastery here these, um, when the new novices are ordained, the junior monks are ordained, they, they have these clay bowls that are made by a local couple of potters out at North Tyneside. And I like to go to visit these potters and 
and see how they do the work. For a very long time, I had a fondness for, for pottery and rather fancy that I could maybe be quite good at it. And I enjoy you know, seeing the kiln and seeing the results, seeing the work before it goes into the kiln and after it comes out of the kiln and the, the glaze and the whole process. And, and if you talk to these guys, you see with the intensity of effort and focus and heat that's needed for this transformation of this lump of mud to a beautiful vessel that's going to have some real purpose. An unfired pot is not going to last very long. It's not very strong. It's just going to fall apart. Once it's been fired and glazed, it becomes waterproof, becomes really useful. Similarly with our hearts and their untamed, untrained, wild, passionate nature of very limited use. In fact, as we would all know, we cause a lot of trouble. We go around causing a lot of trouble in the world. However, we're fortunate we've got the spiritual disciplines, we've had the teachers to set us the example to show us that there is an alternative. Let the energy build up, and if we have the proper preparation, give ourselves into this process of transformation. Yeah. But it's a whole body-mind process. Yeah. And so this uh, willingness to submit ourselves to an increasing level of Frustration, but at the same time keeping it balanced, working on an increased access to well-being, you know, the, cult, the encouragement we have, the cultivation of tranquility, the cultivation of loving-kindness, imbuing the heart with compassion, and these focused exercises that we're encouraged to become skilled in that equip the heart with well-being and a sense of goodness. But also the willingness to feel the suffering that is a natural consequence of our unawareness, our ignorance, our habits of being identified as our preferences. So keeping these things together. Now, as we continue to hopefully develop the skill of investigating our preferences, uh, people are different, how they go about it, Probably some of you will have heard me talk before about how some people really need to have a very clear sense of a goal. What I would refer to as goal-oriented practice. They they talk about the goal that they're working towards and the obstructions to the goal and how you've got to strive to kill off the defilements and get rid of the kilases and get rid of the obstructions and realise and attain to the goal of practice and such people, if, you don't, if they don't have a goal and they don't have clarity about the stages of reaching the goal, you know, maybe for them they're going to feel they don't have confidence in their path of practice. And they need to be in a very doing sort of a mode. Yet for others, when they engage in the doing mode, just get there. It's, like, it's like something collapses. Yeah. They become even more out of balance. Telling them about the stages of development and and telling them how they've got to overcome their obstructions and strive for the goal just makes them feel more inadequate. And what works for them is what I refer to as source-oriented practice. And what they benefit from more is cultivating the disposition of being aware 
So the source-oriented practitioners feel confident when they're in the being mode. The goal-oriented practitioners feel confident when they're in doing mode. Now, I would suggest that as we investigate our relationship to the preferences, it's really helpful if we can get a sense of, where am I with this? Does it really help when I'm striving? Or do I just get caught up in becoming more spiritual or becoming this or that and ending up feeling like I'm a failure or getting conceited and puffed up with all my attainments? If it is the case, then maybe what we need to do is to learn to let go of our becoming and our striving and experiment with, and I emphasize experiment because we're not talking about a a dogma here, we're talking about what works. So if striving and becoming doesn't really seem to be working for us, what happens if we approach meditation with an intention to simply be aware, to trust in that which is behind, that which is already there behind all of our doing, behind all of our impulses to fix things, to make things be, how often it's just an expression of my way. I think I should be more wise or I think I should be less angry. I think I should become more compassionate and I should be more friendly. I should become more patient. And we can make our spiritual exercise into just another exercise in judging ourselves where and that truly for many of us is how we approach meditation and in my case it was many years so I would sit down in meditation and what am I supposed to do now I'm supposed to do this but what was behind my motivation of wanting to do this was it was a fundamental judgment that this is not okay that there's something fundamentally wrong of course, I was taught that, you know, which, so it's understandable that I had that view. There's something fundamentally wrong, and I need to do something to fix it. Yeah. But after years of feeling frustrated by that, thankfully, the other option became apparent, which is that's not an obligation. We don't have to do anything. But we're not talking about giving up. Yeah. Like with liking and disliking. There is a third option. There is liking. It's a movement. There is disliking. It's a movement. But there's also the possibility of knowing the movement. So likewise, the impulse to do something to fix ourselves, the impulse to judge ourselves for not being good enough and not being successful in our meditation... We can also abide with a trusting attitude in simply being aware. Being the awareness in which this movement is taking place. Hmm. We don't have to follow the movement. We can, if it's helpful. Of course we're allowed to do that. Of course we can do that, if it helps. But if it's not helping, then pull back. Fall back. Experiment with Approaching meditation, sit down and inhibit any tendency to do anything. But watch the impulse to do anything. And then maybe the thought comes, but if I don't do anything, I waste my Well, we watch that. And maybe 
and this is interesting, I find it interesting, that instead of talking about watching, we talk about listening. I think this is, I found this to be very, very helpful in investigating our preferences, investigating our misidentification as the conditioned body-mind. Sometimes we talk about watching the breath and watching the tennis in the but isn't it the case that when we're often when we're watching things that we're engaged in trying to manipulate, trying to control? Yeah. We're watching them I and trying to control it with our eyes because certainly in my case is what I was taught as a little kid, you know, very, very early on in life, you you discipline your attention through your eyes to try and extract information and to see what's dangerous and to see what's safe and to see how to control. And this is, I think, why when Ajahn Sumato teaches about listening to the sound of silence, for many people it's so helpful. When we withdraw our attention from our eyes and move to our ears, well, again, don't, don't take my word for it, but experiment with what does it feel like to move into that mode of listening? It's not so directional. It's more like 360 degrees. It's like moving into receptive mode. So instead of being in goal-oriented doing mode, which can be very energy extravagant, might work for some people, but if it's not working, we can experiment with moving into source-oriented receptive mode. And so our practice becomes, rather than trying to fix ourselves and achieve some goal that we imagine we need to achieve, or we don't even know what it is, we've maybe got some idea of the goal, but we don't know what it is. But we approach practice with an attitude of trusting, trusting in that which is behind all of our habits of clinging, all of our habits of controlling, all of our habits of doing. So in this uh, consideration of uh, looking into our preferences, um, as far as I'm concerned, it's not like there's just one way to go about it. When you're approaching a mountain, we all approach the mountain from a different direction. We're all going to have a different perspective. But as we move forward, I would suggest it's really important that we keep checking and asking for ourselves, is this working? And it's a feeling investigation. When we ask that question... We're not asking our heads. This is, again, terribly important because we're so conditioned to relate to life through our mental activity. But there's so much more to us than mental activity. Embodying this investigation. I mentioned before about the the doing and being mode. People, some of you might have practice Tai Chi or seen people practicing Tai Chi and the Tai Chi people they have this exercise they do they call pushing hands you get two people facing each other and the, you get the front of your hand against the back of the other person's hand and as you go forward you get the feeling of being assertive and as you come back the feeling of yielding what does it feel like to be assertive what does it feel like to be yielding this embodied sense of going forward falling back being assertive, the doing mode, yielding, the being mode. So when we ask this question of ourselves, is this working? We're not just asking our heads, we're asking the whole body-mind. 
and we're not in a hurry to answer it. You know, again, it's another thing with questions. You know, powerful questions, real questions, heart questions, it's better not to answer them. You know, just to receive them, to hold them, and let them do their work, taking our attention deeper. So thank you very much this evening for your attention. Namayang, Namavadakatasa, Dukarang, Namasim, Sam.